I also want to read our lesson of the day. This is from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Here again, the Word of God. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but when testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children, the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let us give thanks and pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have given us your gospel, that you have revealed to us the good news, that you have preserved this truth for us down through the ages. Father, we know that the scriptures cannot be broken. Father, would you work in us by your spirit today to give us insight into your word that we might more clearly understand your message to us. And then we might see the glory of Christ revealed there in the pages of Scripture. And that we ourselves might shine with that same glory, that the glory of Christ would light up our lives and that we might shine that same glory into the lives of others. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the message of the Bible? The Bible is certainly a big book. We know that. A big book written over several centuries by many different authors, at least many different human authors, even if there's only one divine author. It's one book, but it's composed of many smaller books, a variety of different kinds of books. And yet we know that with all this diversity in the Bible, it still hangs together. Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. That means there is a consistency, a unity to the whole. All the different parts of scripture fit together. The Bible tells one story from beginning to end. It has one message from beginning to end. So what is it? What is the point of it all? Can you summarize the Bible? If I said to you, 
boil the Bible down to a single sentence, put the message of the Bible in one sentence, could you do it? Uh, I know a lot of pastors and, and teachers and theologians have tried, and I've actually made a habit of collecting these through the years. Whenever I see a teacher uh, or, or hear a pastor or read a theologian who talks about summarizing the message of the Bible in one sentence, I take note of it and I file it away because I've always been interested in this. How do we summarize the Bible? And when I say put the Bible in one sentence, I don't mean you know one sentence with 15 commas and four semicolons, that kind of thing. That's cheating. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who have tried to reduce the Bible to one simple sentence, one elegant sentence. Can it be done? Let me give you some examples of, uh, of these that I've collected over the years. Uh, someone's put it this way. I like this one. Uh, the Bible is the story of boy meets girl. All right, think about how the Bible begins. You can see why somebody would summarize it this way. It begins with Adam meeting Eve. And then how does the Bible end? It ends with the marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. And all throughout the scriptures, God's relationship to his people is symbolized and dramatized in male-female meetings and male-female relationships. The Bible's a romance. Very clearly, it's, it's, it's a romance. It's a love story. The Bible is the story of Christ and his bride. It's boy meets girl. Or take this one. Another pastor has summarized it this way. This takes what I just said and sort of builds upon it. Here's a one-sentence summary of the Bible. Kill the dragon, get the girl. All right, how's that for a one-sentence summary? Uh, here you've got the romance element still there, but now an element of action, of warfare, has been added to the romance. It's not just a romantic love story. It's also an action story, a war story. The Bible is the story of Christ coming to take a bride for himself. But now in this summary, we see that in order to have his bride, he must defeat Satan, the dragon of old. She's the damsel in distress. He has to come and rescue her. Here's another summary, the Bible in one sentence, about as simple as it could get. God saves sinners. Okay, it's a summary of the Bible. Uh, I think that gets at a huge truth taught in the Bible. The Bible is about God's salvation. God graciously and freely rescuing his chosen people from sin and all its consequences. Uh, that's certainly there in the Bible. God freely and graciously saving sinners. We don't deserve his salvation. We have no claim on him. But he saves us anyway because he's that kind of God. He's gracious and merciful. Okay, here's another one of those one-sentence summaries from a theologian. Jesus is the promised king. Okay, this summary reminds us of a basic structure in the Bible, that God makes promises and then he fulfills those promises. And further, it indicates to us that all those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So scripture has this promise fulfillment structure. That's how the story works. God makes promises, then he makes good on those promises. Or here's still another uh, real simple summary of the Bible. God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. Okay? And again, I, I, I like that one. It, it says there's a lot of truth packed into that. God is the creator God who made the world and he made it good. That's the beginning of all things. God made a good world. But then we are sinners who broke the world, who brought sin and death and corruption and decay 
into this world. We broke it. We broke what God made. But now Jesus comes to restore the fallen creation, to repair the ruins. That's a way of looking at the whole story the Bible tells. Now, in looking at these summaries, one thing that I've noticed, you know, as I've collected these summaries over the years, and I've only given you a, a small sampling of them, there are a whole bunch more out there, but um, what I've noticed is that most people summarize the Bible as a message of salvation from sin. Okay, some of these summaries I gave you go beyond that, or maybe look at the Bible from a little bit different angle, but most of the time when people are asked to summarize the Bible, that's what they go to. That's kind of our default, is to think that, uh, that the Bible is a message of salvation from sin. And certainly that's there. That is part of the Bible. It's a huge part of the Bible. But we need to realize that more is going on in the Bible than just a story of salvation from sin. And in saying that, I don't mean to minimize the salvation from sin part of the Bible. It's just that's not the whole story. In fact, that's a subordinate story. You could say really a subplot within the larger story. More centrally, the story of the Bible is the story of God maturing the human race. It's the story of God bringing many sons to glory, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 2. It's not just a story of our salvation from sin. It's a story of us being brought to glory. It's not just Jesus fixing what was broken, putting us back where Adam was in the beginning, as it were. It's about Jesus taking us to an even better, more glorious position than Adam had in the beginning. It's not just about getting back what was lost. It's about something more. And that something more is called glory. It's called maturity. In fact, as, as Jim Jordan has pointed out, there are really three plot threads in the Bible. It's the story of the maturation and glorification of humanity. It's the story of holy war, of faithful man versus Satan and the fallen angels. And it's the story of the salvation of sinful men rescued from sin and death. Three plot lines there in the scriptures. And think about it this way. This is how you can think about it. If Adam had not sinned, there still would have been a story. If Adam had not sinned, there still would have been a story, a, a, a history. It would have been a history of maturation. Adam would have moved from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. Adam was not made static. He was made dynamic. He was made for change and for a greater degree of perfection. So if Adam hadn't sinned, there still would have been a story. If Satan had fallen, but Adam had not, so if Satan had fallen, but Adam had resisted Satan, Satan's temptation, there still would have been the story of holy war. See, that's another plot thread in the Bible. There still would have been this conflict between man and Satan and the fallen angels, that holy war theme. So there are two plot threads now. Then we can add a third plot thread. Because Adam did fall, now we also have a story of redemption. In addition to the story of maturation and in addition to the story of holy war, we also have a story of man's redemption. Because man did fall into sin, man must be rescued from sin. Man must be redeemed. He must be forgiven and made right with God. He has to be restored in that way. So you got those three threads, those three plot lines 
in the Bible. But see, here's the problem. Again, all too often we only focus on the third of those threads, the third of those plot threads, and we ignore the other two. But if we ignore the other two, we're going to misread the Bible or we're going to end up screening out a lot of the Bible. If the Bible is only God-saving sinners, the reality is it could have been a lot shorter. We don't need most of what's been given to us here to know that God redeems sinners and to know how God redeems sinners. The Bible could be a whole lot shorter if that's all there was to it. Uh, A lot of the material we find in Scripture would be unnecessary. And indeed, if all we focus on is God-saving sinners, we can just ignore a lot of the material we have in Scripture. For example, you might wonder, you you pick up the Bible and start reading in the book of Genesis, you might wonder, why do we have these long narrative biographies in Genesis of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, these men who become the patriarchs of Israel? These stories are not given just to show us God saves sinners. That's a part of it, no doubt. But in each case, God is doing so much more. In each one of these cases, the story of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, God is taking a man and he is maturing that man and moving him from glory to glory, making him a new kind of man, a kind of man the world's never seen before. God makes something new out of each one of these men. He forms them into a new kind of human. So take the story of Abraham. Abraham is not just a sinner saved by grace. Abraham is a man who learns to practice patient faith as he spends much of his life waiting on God, waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. And as Adam grow, as Abraham grows in faith, he's actually growing in glory. He's becoming a new kind of human being. Or take the story of Jacob. Jacob, again, is not just a sinner saved by grace. That theme is, I'm not saying it's not there at all in the life of Jacob, but it's not the main thing. What's going on in the life of Jacob? He is a man who learns how to wrestle with enemies, who learns how to wrestle with evil men who mistreat him. And as he wrestles with these men, he matures. And so he matures as he wrestles with his father and as he wrestles with Laban and as he wrestles with Esau and ultimately then God shows up and wrestles with him in the middle of the night. As if God is saying to Jacob, look, in all these wrestling matches you've had with these men who have opposed you, you've really been wrestling with me. And why have I been wrestling with you in all of these different circumstances and these difficult men I've put in your life? It's to make you stronger. It's to make you more glorious, to make you something that you weren't before. Jacob's life is not just about redemption, it's about maturation. Or take the closing narrative in the book of Genesis, Joseph. Joseph is not just a sinner saved by grace. He is that, but there's so much more going on. Joseph is a man who learns obedience through suffering. He's a man who goes through a period of being a slave, And then he becomes a son who is brought to glory. Joseph learns obedience through his suffering as he is persecuted by his brothers, as he is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, as he is abandoned by Pharaoh's butler in prison. In all these ways, he is suffering, but in the midst of his suffering, he's learning how to be obedient. And in the end, he's glorified as he is exalted to a place of reign and dominion. And so Genesis 
began with a perfect man, but it ends with a perfect man as well. And a man who in some ways goes beyond Adam's original perfection. Joseph is a mature man who has taken dominion in a new kind of way. He rules over the earth in a new kind of way. See, in Genesis, these are not just stories of salvation. They're stories of transformation. They're stories of maturation. Stories of glorification. These patriarchs don't just get saved. They get transformed. They're not just redeemed. They're made wise. They're not just sinners saved by grace. They're sons brought to glory. And these stories in Genesis recount this process of development. A process of development people would have to pass through even if sin had never entered the world. There would still be growth. There would still be this process of maturation. It's not just in the book of Genesis you have this. Really, the whole history of Israel works this way. If all God wanted to do is show how he saved sinners, most of the record of Israel's history is unnecessary. Most of that whole big chunk of our Bible about Israel is just completely unnecessary. But there's an interesting passage in Galatians 3 and 4 where Paul tells us what God was up to when he plucked Israel out of all the other nations of the world and made Israel his own nation in a special way. Paul in Galatians 3 and 4 explains to us what's going on in God's selection of Israel, why he pulls them aside to work with them in a special way. And Paul tells us God gave Israel the law because Israel was a child under tutors. Israel was humanity in training. Israel with training wheels. Israel was humanity under age. Humanity in immature form. When God gave Israel the law, it's like Israel was enrolled in elementary school. And she starts off in kindergarten. And you know, kindergartners don't get to pick their clothes or their meals or when it's nap time. Kindergartners are under authority and they've got to follow orders. Oh yes, Israel had a glorious future. She was heir to the world. It's like a billionaire in waiting but not yet ready to take possession of the inheritance. Israel was going to inherit this glorious fortune, but she couldn't handle it yet. And so God gave her the law. God put her through a training regimen a kind of education process with the law. Paul says Israel under the law was a child. But he goes on in Galatians 4, he says, but now, now that Christ and the Spirit have come, the church, that is the new Israel, has graduated from school and has entered into her maturity. And so we have new freedoms and new responsibilities and new powers. We've been sent out. Where's the law hemmed Israel in? Now we've been sent out. Just like a, you know, a, a child grows up in your house and then you send them out. Israel is sent out on a mission with work to do. Israel was a child under age when she was under the law. Now she's all grown up. We as the church are the new and mature Israel. We've been given glory. We've entered into our inheritance. We now possess it. That's Paul's point in Galatians 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 2 gives us this wider angle view of God's purposes. Not just zooming in on salvation from sin, but this wide angle panoramic view of what God is up to in history. And actually it's interesting, Hebrews 2 ties together all three plot threads that we've seen in the Bible into a single knot. They're all there in Hebrews 2. I challenge you to go find them. I don't think it's that hard. But we're mainly going to focus on this maturation theme. 
What does Paul mean here when he says God is bringing many sons to glory? What does that mean? You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism opens with a question, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to bring glory to God. But what if we turn that question around and ask, what is God's chief end? There is a very real sense in which you could say, God's chief end is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. Okay, how about that? God's chief end is to glorify man. That's what Paul says here in Hebrews 2. God's whole purpose is to bring many sons to glory. God's chief end is bringing many sons to glory. At least in creation, we can say that is God's chief end, God's purpose. Now, for God to glorify us is certainly quite different than for us to glorify God. God doesn't worship us the way we worship him. God doesn't need us or depend on us the way we need him and depend on him. He is the all-sufficient, all-glorious God. We're dependent creatures. So all kinds of caveats and qualifications there on what I just said. But still, even as we say our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, there's a very real sense in which we can say God's chief end is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. That's why God made us. God made man for glory. God made you for glory. God made me for glory. He wants to bestow this glory on us. He made us so he would have creatures in his image who can be shaped and molded into mature reflections of his glory, mature bearers of his glory. Yes, even in a certain sense, sharers in his glory. The God who shares his glory with no one in some way does share his glory with humanity. God made man to be his right-hand man, in a sense you could say. God made us to share in his rule, to have dominion over the creation, to wear a crown of glory and honor, and to represent his rule, his wise and loving and righteous rule in the cosmos. Now, I can't explain every word and phrase in these verses here in Hebrews 2. This is one of my favorite passages. It's also one of the densest passages you'll find in all of Scripture. It really should be worked through a a word and phrase at a time. But it's just too jam-packed for us to do that this morning. What I want to do is pick out a few highlights that capture this theme that is threaded through the whole Bible and show you how Hebrews 2 shows us what's going on with this theme. Verse 5 says, For he, that is God, has not put the world to come, of which we have been speaking, in subjection to angels. The implication in the context here is that the world to come is subjected to Christ, who is greater than the the angels. Paul's just argued in Hebrews 1 that Christ is superior to the angels. People might wonder, how can Jesus be better than the angels when he died such a shameful death? And Paul in this letter is showing how that works. But what's interesting here is that Hebrews indicates there is an old world and a new world, a world that is and a world to come. And the important thing here in the context to note is this. Hebrews was written before 70 A.D., before Jerusalem fell, before the destruction of the temple. That's the old world, that old Jewish world order, a world order centered around the temple in Jerusalem. That's the old world. The temple was the center of that world. That's what they called Jerusalem, the navel of the world. The whole letter of Hebrews is about the transition from old covenant to new covenant, from old world to new world. It's about the turning of the ages that the New Testament talks about so much. 
And so Hebrews is looking ahead. It's probably written in the early 60s A.D., and we, I'm not going to go into the whole context of it, but it's looking ahead to that rapidly approaching day when the old creation will be shaken down and the shadows of the old covenant will be replaced with the realities and glories of the new covenant. That old world was in some way subjected to angels, including that fallen angel Satan who is called the god of that world or the prince of that world. There were good and bad angels, and they in some way had oversight over humanity and, and acted as authorities. And so, for example, we're told elsewhere in Scripture that angels gave the law to Moses. It was an angelic administration. The angels were in charge. They were sort of the school teachers who handed over the lesson plans. Or in Deuteronomy and Daniel, we learned that there were particular angels given oversight over particular nations. So, for example, the archangel Michael oversees the nation of Israel. The old world was the time of humanity's immaturity. Man had angelic tutors. But Paul's saying here, in the new world, in the new covenant world, in this new creation we've entered into in Christ Jesus, this is now a time of maturity and glory for the church. Corporately speaking, the human race has in principle matured in Christ. If you can only think in terms of individuals and not in terms of a corporate humanity, you won't get this at all. This is about corporate humanity entering into a new world situation, a situation of maturity, of maturation and glorification in Christ. You see this if you keep going because Hebrews next quotes from Psalm 8. This is David's reflection, a psalm of David. It's David's reflection on man's place in the cosmic purposes of God. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? For a little while you made him lower than the angels, but you have now crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This psalm moves from Adam to the new Adam, from the old world to the new, from the rule of angels to the rule of man. And what's important to understand is this was the trajectory of the human race from the beginning. That's what David really is reflecting on is God's original plan for humanity. Man was made a little lower than the angels in the beginning. Man was immature. But he was only to be lower than the angels for a little while. Eventually God would promote him to a higher state. And now, as Hebrews 2 goes on to show us, now in Christ that has happened. Man has been exalted. In Christ, we are crowned with glory and honor. And so in Christ Jesus, God's purposes for the whole human race have been fulfilled. Whereas before, man was under the angels. Now, as Hebrews 1.14 says, angels serve us. Or as 1 Corinthians 6 says, we will judge angels. We've been exalted above them, promoted above them in God's cosmic hierarchy. Man's original role in the creation, in the cosmic drama, was to be God's agent ruling over the world. Had Adam been faithful to his commission 
and done the work entrusted to him, he would have eventually been crowned with glory and honor. And that probably means, if you look at the way Genesis 2 and 3 unfold, that probably means Adam would have eventually been given access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in Scripture, knowing good and evil, or judging good and evil, or determining good and evil, those are royal prerogatives. That's language used for the office of a king. And so Adam would have eventually been promoted to the office of king and would have been given access to that tree. And at that point, I think God would have robed him with a royal garment and put a crown of glory and honor on his head. But we know it was not to be. Adam turned away from God, and so he lost his office. He lost his chance at glory. Sin ruined him and ruined the creation. And so instead of being promoted, he was demoted. Instead of being exalted, he was degraded. Adam would never be crowned with glory and honor. And so what is God, what did God do? God sent a second Adam. He sent his own son in human flesh. And what Hebrews 2 is showing us here is Psalm 8, this reflection of David on man's place in the cosmos. It really comes to fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man, described in the psalm. Think about that. This talks about the Son of Man, or the the Son of Adam, a new Adam. That's really what that means. What is Jesus' favorite self-title, his favorite self-designation? What does he call himself again and again and again? He calls himself Son of Man. What is he saying? I've come to do what the first Adam was supposed to do but failed. He failed to be faithful to God and to be exalted to that position of kingly glory and honor. I will be faithful. I will receive that promotion. In me, the whole human race will be advanced to a state of maturity. That's what Jesus means when he calls himself Son of Man. That's what's going on there with that title. And that's really what verses 8 and 9 go on to explain. Everything has been put into in subjection to Christ All authority in heaven and earth is his, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 28. Same truth that's being taught here. God's purposes for man and for the creation are fulfilled in Christ as he takes dominion over the whole world as his kingdom grows to fill the whole earth. It's true, Hebrews 2 um, goes on at the end of the chapter to talk about salvation from sin and death. Verse 10, he says that Jesus had to suffer Uh, to become the captain of our salvation. And of course, he also adds there in order to bring us uh, to glory. But he does talk about Jesus as the captain of our salvation. Salvation is a theme there. Verses 14 through 18 of this chapter show us how Jesus destroyed the devil and released us from bondage to death. And how did he do so? By taking the wrath our sins deserved upon himself. So those other major plot threads in Scripture are certainly found here in this chapter, that holy war theme of the, the, the fight against Satan, it's right here in this chapter. That salvation from sin theme, yes, that's right here in this chapter, how Jesus made himself a substitute, taking the punishment we deserve. It's all there. The point then is that God's purpose of glorifying humanity has been brought to fulfillment in Jesus. That's really the point here. Here we see in verse 10, Jesus came to bring many sons to glory. 
Okay, again, we so often zero in on the redemption theme. We miss little phrases, little clues like this in Scripture. What does it mean for Jesus to bring many sons to glory? It means he's maturing us with himself, in union with himself. He's fitting us to rule with him. Jesus has advanced our human nature to a a, a new and higher state of glory. Remember again, God's purpose was to glorify man even apart from redemption. If man had never fallen into sin, man would have eventually been glorified. He would have eventually been crowned with glory and honor. Now we can say the only way we can get to glory is through redemption. But redemption's not the goal. Glory is. Glory is the goal. Jesus did not come to redeem us. He came to bring us to glory. Now, in order to bring us to glory, he did have to redeem us. But the glory is the goal. The glory is more basic, more ultimate, more foundational. God doesn't just want redeemed sons. He wants glorious sons. That's what Jesus has come to do. And that's why it's so interesting. Psalm 8 We read it, the whole thing is our call to worship this morning. Psalm 8 does not say anything about sin and redemption. It's really interesting. I think it's David's reflection on the trajectory of humanity, even apart from our fall into sin. It's a reflection on God's purposes for the human race. And it reminds us, God did not let sin wreck his plan. In fact, God undertook redemption precisely so. The original plan to crown man with glory and honor, could be fulfilled. That's why I say redemption is not the main plot, it's a subplot. There's this bigger story going on, and redemption comes in so that that larger story can continue to move forward. Sin could have short-circuited God's plan. Indeed, it seemed to derail God's plan. But Jesus comes to put that plan back on track. And so in Him, man has a crown of glory and honor. In Him, man rules. The plan of God from the beginning is still fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Christ and because of Christ and through Christ. Now, what do we take away from this? I think there are several things here we could point to, but let me just point to a couple. First, We have to say Jesus is the paradigm and prototype for humanity. You want to know what a man is supposed to be? You look at Jesus. You want to know what human life is really supposed to look like, how we were designed to live? You look at Jesus. He is the new Adam, the model we should pattern ourselves after. He shows us what true humanity, that is glorified and matured humanity, looks like. If the goal is glory, If the goal is maturity, Jesus has it. And those things can only be found in Him. The goal is not just getting your sins forgiven. The goal is not just getting redeemed. The goal is becoming glorious. The goal is wearing that crown of glory and honor and it fitting you just right. And the way to do that is to become like Jesus. So what did Jesus do? Well, look at verse 10. The captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Now, think about that for a second. You, know, you might say, well, now wait a second. Why does it say that the captain of our salvation was made perfect through sufferings? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? How can Jesus be made perfect? How can you become what you already are? Well, yes, if by perfect you mean sinless, then no, Jesus didn't have to be made perfect. He was always perfect. But what then does Hebrews mean when it says he was made perfect? 
Well, that word perfect in many places in Scripture has a sense of maturity. It means to be made mature. To be perfect is to be wise and glorious. You become perfect when you advance so that you become what you were intended to be all along. It means you've gone through a process of maturation and you've reached the end for which God made you. You've moved from the beginning glory to final glory, from original glory to eschatological glory. To be perfect means you've fulfilled your purpose. You've arrived at the destination God intended for you. God intended the human race to take a journey, to not just stay in the same place. To be perfect means you've arrived at the end point, the destination in that journey. Consider the way that language of perfect is used elsewhere in Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered and having been made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Look at what Paul says there. Christ learned obedience. Again, we can ask the same question. Didn't he already know how to obey his father? Hadn't he as the eternal son of God always in some sense obeyed his father? Well, yes, that's true. He didn't have to learn obedience in that way. But in another way, he did. In his humanity, he did have to grow and learn and move from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory until finally, at last, he became perfect. And Hebrews 5 shows us his suffering was an essential ingredient in that process. His suffering was a necessary part of the process by which he became mature and perfect. Indeed, elsewhere, Hebrews makes it clear this perfection could not have come through the law or the sacrifices or the temple or the priests of the old world, the old creation, the old covenant. The law could never grant maturity and glory. In other words, you can't mature so long as you're under the authority of your kindergarten teacher. It just can't happen. You can't reach maturity that way. Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 all show the law in different ways. The law, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, none of them could bring perfection. But then you come to Hebrews 10, 14, which says by his one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now it's not just Christ's perfection in view, it's ours. It's not just his glory and maturation, it's ours. Through his death and resurrection, his perfection is made ours. And so Hebrews 12, too, goes on to call Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who brings our faith to maturity. He moves us. The whole Christian life is moving from faith to faith, which means from one degree of maturity to a greater degree of maturity, from one degree of wisdom to a higher degree of wisdom, from one level of glory to a higher degree of glory. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He brings us to perfection. He brings us to maturity. And so in principle, we can say, yes, we are all perfect and mature in Christ Jesus. And we can also say we must continue to grow and mature and move from perfection to perfection, moving from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. In Christ Jesus, we are all now adults, crowned with glory and honor, given freedoms, privileges, and responsibilities as co-rulers in Christ Jesus over the creation. We've been enthroned with Christ. We rule with him. This is what it means for Jesus to bring many sons to glory. We've been brought to this glory. And yet we continue to move from glory to glory. See, what is your present? You are glorious. What is your future? 
you're going to be even more glorious. Your present is glory. Your future is even greater glory. That's God's plan for humanity. Scripture is clear. The church is the glory of God. It's interesting how there's all these clues that God is remaking the church into the image of Christ's glory. John chapter 1 in his gospel, Jesus is called the revelation of God's glory. John 1.14, the, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. So we saw the glory of Jesus. Here is a mature humanity. This is what human, humanity is supposed to look like. This is a glorious son, a son who has glory. But then in Revelation 21, John, the same author, says the church, which is described there as God's city and Christ's bride, the church is said to have the glory of God. The church has the glory of God. The church possesses the glory of God. The church in some way bears the glory of God and reflects the glory of God and is the glory of God. And you go on to unpack, you know, that gets unpacked in the rest of the chapter. The, the, the church is described as a holy of, uh, of holies, a cube, a place where God dwells. The church shines with God's light, and we're told the nations walk in that light. The church is the place where God's glory dwells and where God's glory is revealed. We are the many sons who have been brought to glory. Man was made to be the glory of God. Not just to glorify God. Yes, that's true too. But to be the glory of God. Isaiah 46, 13, the Lord says, Israel is my glory. Israel is the glory of God. That's what the church is. The glory of God. Man was made to be the glory of God. And now Christ is the glory of God. And now man in Christ shares in the glory of God. That's what God is doing. 2 Corinthians 3 captures this so well too. I've already alluded to it a bunch, but 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, we move from one degree of glory to another. We reflect God's glory to one another and we behold God's glory in one another and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another in this way. As we reflect the glory and as we behold the glory, we're transformed from glory to glory. We are the matured and enthroned humanity God wanted all along. That's who you are. That's who we are as the people of God. That is your identity. And so the result of this is clear. If you've been crowned with glory and honor, if you're a son who's been brought to glory, then what does God want you to do with your life? He wants you to use your life to further His kingdom. To live as a king. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because the kingdom, because of the kingdom, everything matters. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. You have been promoted to a position of rule. You have been enthroned in Christ Jesus. He is seated in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2 says you are seated in the heavenlies in him. You're not just rescued from sin. You're seated in glory with dominion. You're not just redeemed. You're matured. You're not just forgiven. You're glorified. And so now live as a king. What kind of kingly reign are you exercising? How do you exercise reign as a king? Well, you exercise dominion through your work. Your daily work is now kingdom work. It's glorious. Oh, it might seem mundane, but really it's glorious and it has eternal value. God will take the works of your hands and make them to stand forever. You are a king with a royal calling. 
Your work may seem so ordinary, but it matters. Whatever you go out to do, you are working in the king's palace. This whole cosmos is his palace, his home, his castle. You're working in the king's castle, in the king's palace every day. You exercise dominion in this way. You exercise dominion through prayer. Prayer is where God invites us in as his counselors. And he takes counsel with us. We have access to the heavenly throne room where God hears our petitions and acts. And so our prayers go up and world-changing answers come down. And in this way, we exercise dominion. We reign as kings through prayer. We exercise dominion through suffering. We learn obedience through our suffering even as Christ did. And as we suffer faithfully, we are made more and more like Jesus Himself. We exercise dominion when we suffer faithfully. But there's still this question. It's always a, it, you know, it's kind of the elephant in the room question whenever we talk about this. If Christ is crowned with glory and honor, so he rules over all, and in union with him, we are crowned with glory and honor as well, so we are co-rulers with him. If the Son has brought many sons to glory, why don't we see more of that glory? Why don't we see more of that reign? Why do we live in a world where people who want children can't have them, while others don't want the children they have and murder them in the womb? Why do we live in a world where an innocent teenager can be asleep in his own bed and be shot in a random act of violence? Why do we live in a world so full of cruelty and misery, in a world where cancer and car accidents can cut life short? Why do we see so much sin and, and evil and suffering and so little honor and glory? You know, that's not just a question for us. It's not just a question we have. It's a question they had too way back when this letter was first written. And it gives us an answer because it's explicitly addressed right here in Hebrews 2. Verse 8 answers that very question. It says, we do not yet see all things put under Him. We don't see it yet. But verse 9 goes on to say, we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus, and that's enough. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And so we trust, yes, He really is in charge. He really is at God's right hand, ruling over all. We trust in Him, and we hope in Him. And we obey Him, and we imitate Him. We don't see all things put in subjection to His feet, or to ours for that matter. But we do see Him. And so we know the kingdom is here. The new creation is here. The world to come is here. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We are sons who have been brought to glory. Christ rules over all things for the sake of His church. Those are the facts no matter our feelings. Those are the most fundamental facts in the universe. But we know too, this kingdom that has been inaugurated is not yet consummated. Putting all things under Jesus' feet is a process that will not be fully complete until the last day. The kingdom doesn't come in like the 82nd Airborne. No, Jesus described His kingdom coming like leaven, working its way through a lump of dough. His kingdom comes in the form of a cross. It often comes in weakness and brokenness. It comes in humility and sacrifice and suffering. Jesus spreads out His kingdom through us in all these ways as we seek to live faithfully as His broken, still in some ways, but also glorious people 
in this world. Our lives should be signposts showing the world that the kingdom is here. We live new creation lives. Lives under His Lordship. Our own lives subjected to His Lordship proves to the world that He is Lord. As our own lives are subjected to Christ, we show the world what it means to be perfect, what it means to be mature, what it means to be glorious, what it means to be truly human. And as we learn obedience through suffering, we show the world what this crown of glory and honor looks like. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You have crowned Jesus with glory and honor and that we wear that crown as well, that we are the many sons He has brought to glory. Father, may we live out this glory. May we shine with this glory and reflect this glory and bear this glory. May we be this glory. May we be Your glory. And as we are Your glory, may we glorify You. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.